Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Disney Nation, my most ambitious project to date. In this series, I'll be breaking down every Disney animated movie. And I mean every Disney animated movie. The official Disney canon, the Pixar canon, the unofficial Disney canon, the direct-to-video sequels, the Disney Channel and Disney Plus original animated movies, the live-action remakes, and the recently acquired 20th Century Fox and Blue Sky Studios animated movies. If people show enough interest, I'm going to be making this series until I die. Thanks, Disney. So, where better to begin than where it all started? With a mouse and two brothers. Walt and Roy Disney left Kansas City, Missouri for Los Angeles in 1923, starting out by producing the Alice short films, which mixed live action with animation, as well as the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit shorts. The Disney brothers would hop between various locations before settling at a place on Hyperion Avenue in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles, which they dubbed Walt Disney Studio. While finishing up the Oswald shorts for Universal Pictures, Walt and his head animator, Ub Iwerks, created the character of Mickey Mouse and teamed up with Carl Stalling and Pat Powers to make Steamboat Willie, which is what became the studio's first major success. Following a dispute with Powers, Disney reincorporated as Walt Disney Productions, while Powers signed Iwerks to his own contract outside of Disney. At this time, Walt created a story department within the studio to create more emotionally driven characters and stories. Their first major success was their retelling of The Three Little Pigs with the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, even garnering chart success at the time. In 1934, Walt got his key staff together and told them he planned to produce their first feature-length animated film. At the time, Disney was seen as a fool, with a project dubbed Disney's Folly, but Disney forged on, making more shorts along the way to experiment with new animation techniques and to practice drawing human figures. Unfortunately, this endeavor would cost Disney $1.4 million, which adjusted for inflation is just short of $26 million, meaning it would cost as much as the other big-budget movies at the time, like the original version of A Star is Born. During production, Disney mortgaged his house to fund the movie, and at one point they invited Joseph Rosenberg, a representative of Bank of America, who was funding their studio at the time, to show him a rough print of Snow White in order to get more money. After being shown the cut, Rosenberg immediately left, followed by Walt, who figured they were ruined. After getting into his car, Rosenberg simply said, Goodbye, that thing is going to make a hat full of money, before driving off. Rosenberg was right. At the time, Snow White was the highest-grossing movie in the world, a feat that was only outdone by Gone with the Wind two years later. In its initial run, Snow White made back eight times its budget, and has since made $418 million, and is currently the tenth highest-grossing movie of all time adjusted for inflation. What once made Disney a laughingstock in the industry would eventually garner him an honorary Academy Award, a full-size statuette plus seven miniature ones, bankrolled the next several feature films, and allowed for the studio to relocate to their current location in Burbank, California. Before we get into the film itself, though, considering how many Disney animations are adaptations of previously existing material, I'm also going to take some time to cover the source material before reviewing the Disney version, since Disneyfication is a hell of a drug. Originally published in 1812 as part of their Grimm's Fairy Tales collection, Snow White tells the tale of a young princess, born after a queen pricks her finger while sewing, causing drops of her blood to hit a snow-covered black windowsill. 
This image led her to wish for a daughter with skin white as snow, lips red as blood, and hair black as ebony. Because that's the normal thing you do when you prick your finger. Anyway, her wish comes true, but the queen dies in childbirth, which was the style at the time. The king remarried the next year, but the new wife was a vain and wicked woman who practiced witchcraft and asked a magic mirror who the fairest one of all was. Starting at seven years old, the mirror began telling the queen Snow White was the fairest one of all, and out of jealousy, the queen orders a huntsman to lure Snow White into the woods and kill her, bringing back her heart so that she can eat it and become immortal. Solid plan so far. When he got Snow White out to the woods, the huntsman was unable to kill her because he's not an absolute monster, and he warns her about the queen's plans and has her run off into the woods while the huntsman uses an animal heart in her place. As she wanders through the woods, Snow White comes across a cottage belonging to seven dwarves, and like fellow fairy tale character Goldilocks, she breaks in, eats their food, drinks their wine, keep in mind she's seven at this time, and crashes on their beds. When the dwarves return, they anticipate a burglar, only to find Snow White. She wakes up and explains about the queen's attempt at killing her, and the dwarves agree to let her stay if she works as a housekeeper, because the least she could do is make up for eating their food and drinking their wine, the dirty seven-year-old lush. Needless to say, the dwarves warn Snow White to be careful while they're at work. Ten years later, the queen asks the mirror again who the fairest of them all is, and the mirror responds that Snow White still is and snitches that she's staying with the dwarves. Not sure why she waited ten years to ask again, but whatever. Deciding to take matters into her own hands, she disguises herself and offers Snow White presents in order to kill her. First, she turned into an old peddler and gives her laced bodices, which she ties so tight that Snow White collapses. When that fails, she gives Snow White a comb that poisons her as long as it's in her hair. Sure, why not? But she finally succeeds by disguising herself as a farmer's wife and giving Snow White a poisoned apple that causes Snow White to fall into a state of suspended animation. Unable to revive her, the dwarves place Snow White in a glass casket and hold a funeral for her. A few days later, a prince finds Snow White in the casket during a hunting trip and decides to take her to his father's castle for a proper burial. During the trip, one of the prince's servants trips and loses his hold on the casket, and this caused the poisoned piece of apple to dislodge from Snow White's throat, magically reviving her. Now that she's alive, the prince declares his love for her, and Snow White accepts this random stranger's proposal because sure, why not? The queen is invited to their wedding, thinking she finally got rid of Snow White once and for all. Unlike Snow White, the prince realizes the queen is a threat and forces the queen to wear red-hot iron slippers and dance until she drops dead. Snow White still marries this clearly demented prince because at least the person he tortured had tried to kill her first. So it's cool! So, a lot of that was left out of the Disney version. How well does that one hold up? Honestly, way better than you would think. What I noticed on this rewatch was how good the movie looks right now. Disney is ensured to maintain the film's visual quality so it always looks its best. The backgrounds are beautifully painted and the animation fits in with them so seamlessly. There's even some good use of soft focus when they do close-ups on Snow White's face and it feels straight out of a live-action film. The crew did such an amazing job, especially for their first ever feature-length film. The biggest issues I had stem from the limitations of the time. The human characters are kind of in an uncanny valley in terms of their appearance, something that would 
see improvement as they continued drawing human characters more. Not to mention the fact that the most dated aspects of the film are the voice acting and singing of the prince in Snow White. At this time, so much of acting was still based on live theater techniques from vaudeville to Shakespeare, and radio and film during the 1930s all maintained that theatrical style since that's how actors were trained. We wouldn't begin to see film acting adjust to its own style different from live theater until the 1940s. What Walt and his crew realized when adapting the story was how redundant it was. Snow White fell for the same trick essentially three times in the original story, so cutting that back to the singular apple trick made more sense, as well as limit the amount of scenes they'd need to animate, of course. Plus, giving the dwarves their own personalities made the story more memorable than just having seven generic supporting characters that have to save Snow White because she can't figure out these free gifts being given to her are a trick by her murderous stepmom. Like you do. Admittedly, Grumpy and Dopey get the most screen time and development, but you can easily remember each dwarf by name, and each dwarf is given a moment to stand out during the movie. Overall, it was the dwarfs who had the most scenes cut during production. More scenes featuring them, including an extra song sung by Happy about soup, were planned but had to be cut for time, pacing, and budgetary reasons. The one character who I thought needed more screen time, the prince, didn't have any more scenes planned. Granted, Disney gave the prince more interaction time with Snow White than they originally had, but I feel like we should have some more scenes with him, like having him run into Snow White while she's hiding in the woods, or asking the queen where Snow White is during this time. Just something to have him as more of a character and show them falling in love instead of just the one song before he comes in to save her at the end. Considering the tumultuous production, it's amazing how few animation errors there are. The biggest one is how immaculate Snow White's dress is following her run through the scary part of the woods. Granted, it's hard to determine if that sequence was actually happening or was some kind of fear-driven hallucination. So you could explain that away, but considering how many times the branches grabbed onto her dress and the dip she took into the pond, she looks great by the time the animals find her. The only other real error I could find was during the Dwarf's Yodel Song, the silly song scene. There's a couple close-ups of Dwarf's hands while Dopey and Sneezy are dancing with Snow White, and the hands are very clearly Dopey's hands, playing the drums and clapping, you see his green sleeves and everything. You definitely get the feeling they lost track of the dwarves at that point in the scene. While it isn't an error per se, the fact that Snow White and the prince barely ever close their lips is a little off-putting. Even during that bit at the end of one song where the dove passes on Snow White's kiss, the dove basically just pecks his teeth because he can't close his damn lips. There really aren't any major plot holes that I could find though. We never really get a detailed understanding of how the Queen's magic works, so for all we know, it was reversible since she died before she could get back to the castle. There is a bit of an issue with the dwarves building the glass coffin and watching her for what's insinuated to be almost a year, but it seemed like they'd take the lid off every day or so for some reason. That's been an issue going back to the original story, honestly. Uh, I feel like an easy fix uh, is to have a similar situation to what they did with Prince Philip and Aurora in Sleeping Beauty. Have them plan to meet in the woods, allowing for the prince to find her location in the woods, only to see that she's seemingly dead. It's also a bit creepy to have the prince kiss what is, for all intents and purposes, a corpse on the lips, but I don't know how well the whole knocking the poison apple chunk out of her throat by dropping her body would play. Making it all magic just makes it easier. Going back to the Queen's death, I do find it interesting that Disney set up the trope for villains killing themselves from movie one. While having the hero kill the villain is cathartic for them, 
Disney made the conscious decision to have the queen responsible for her own death in her haste to kill the dwarves. This trope would pop up in future Disney movies, most notoriously with Clayton's death by Vine in Tarzan, as well as the trope of Disney villains falling to their death. It's an interesting way of removing the villain, and kind of fitting here. We'll discuss this more in the Sleeping Beauty episode, but that situation benefited from having the heroes vanquish the villain, whereas here it's a bit more fitting for the queen to get herself killed rather than have the dwarves bash her head in. As for the original ending, it's kinda dickish to show our heroes make the villain dance in hot iron shoes until she died. Honestly, that kind of punishment feels more villainous than heroic, and Disney recognized that kind of behavior wouldn't fit his version of the story. Think of it this way. The Queen's main motivation was her vanity, and being seen as more beautiful than Snow White, and her vanity pushed her to disguise herself as an ugly hag, and in escaping from the dwarves, he attempts to kill them only to be struck by lightning and presumably, crushed by the boulder she was going to use to kill the dwarves. She died as she truly was, an ugly witch. Now you may think of all Disney's movies, Snow White wouldn't need to be censored in any way, but in many countries, some scenes were seen as unsuitable for children and cut out. The specific scenes were Snow White's escape from the huntsmen through the woods, the queen brewing her potion, and the climax during the thunderstorm. The most prominent country to censor the movie was Sweden, who didn't receive an uncut version of the movie until 1992, with the caveat that children 7 and under should watch it with a parent. This isn't to judge Sweden so much as highlight how Sweden and the US are different in when it comes to this. While the scenes were scary, even now the Snow White escape sequence is a, this mind trip, almost like a more kid-friendly version of the tunnel sequence from Willy Wonka. Uh, US distributors, however, felt that they shouldn't be cut. While Swedish distributors felt it was better to cut the scenes altogether until they got to a point where they would leave it in, but would leave a warning for parents. While it isn't one of my favorite Disney movies, for the first time effort, it holds up really well, especially as it nears a hundred years old. Next time on Disneymation, we'll be covering Disney's sophomore effort as he adapts the Italian children's novel, The Adventures of Pinocchio. The little wooden puppet has some big shoes to fill. Will his conscience be a good guide, or was he better off in the bottom of that whale? Tune in next time to find out. Until then, thanks for listening.